Bloody Elbow presents the sixth round post-fight show, which gives you a rundown and full analysis of the bouts that took place on this weekend's UFC event. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the sixth round post-fight show with me, Zane Simon, and my co-host, once again joined by Dane Fox, stepping in for Eddie Mercado. Eddie has once again been lost at sea. We're hoping that he washes up on a desert island sometime in the not-too-distant future. Until then, Dane, thanks for joining me again. Coming to you all just from the close of UFC 285, going down at the T-Mobile Arena in Paradise, Nevada, where John Jones is now heavyweight champion. I'm out of a bit of a loss of words because... Uh... I was expecting a little bit more of a fight and <laughs> you, me and everybody except John Jones, apparently. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it, Jones is such a difficult one to, to gauge because he's extremely arrogant and I'm not <laughs> saying that he doesn't have reason to be arrogant. You know, I mean, there's a reason why everybody was saying his goat status was on the line coming into the fight. That's, that's lofty expectations, but Sure. I mean, he's never, you know, really honestly lost a fight yet either. That's gonna, if if you've got a big ego, that is that is exactly the kind of thing that's gonna feed it. Yep, yep. But you know, um, lots of people, and I I have to admit, I was wrong, myself included. That you know, we expect, you know, at some point, arrogance tends to catch up to people. But you know what, Jones just may eternally prove to be the exception to the rules. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, maybe someday, but that day is not today. He, no. uh, yeah, I picked him to win this. I thought, but I picked it for like classic reasons. I very much expected John Jones to look more or less like he looked against uh, Tiago Santos mm-hmm. or Dominic Reyes. Go out, pressure a lot. Trade kicks, trade hooks with Gone, stay at a range. You know, Gone likes to be on his back foot a lot. He's very happy to play the exact same kind of one for one game that Jones likes. And I figured, you know, as long as Jones's toughness, which has never been, never looked like it's been cracked or being cracked, was in place. And as long as his cardio was in place, because that's always been insanely good. Um, then he would just be able to pressure and have a slow-paced fight and grind a bit, maybe get some top control for a little bit and rough gone up a bit and just kind of take over late as the fight went on, whereas gone wouldn't be really used to fighting against somebody that durable and able to pressure him that long. Yeah. Just kind of my, my general feeling. You know, you'd have sort of like the late fold that gone had against Francis Ngannou. Where even though Nganu was was absolutely exhausted and shot or and tired and his knees were shot, Gon still was just also exhausted and making bad decisions. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, you know the the Nganu fight really solidified the fact that Gon is uh, a little bit clueless on the mat. Yeah, um, and th- this only solidified that even further. Yeah, uh, he just made mistake after mistake until he allowed Jones to to basically do what he want and tricked him into setting up that that uh, guillotine it was flawless performance by jones on the mat in that sense well yeah instead of you know instead of getting the cautious consistent jones that i kind of expected 
we had Jones discovering what I feel like has always been the thing that has made other light heavyweights who, who jump up to heavyweight so good. What's made DC so functional or uh, when he made the jump, what made Couture jump so successful when he would jump back and forth. It's just that if you realize that no matter how big a guy like Cyril Gaon is, a lot of heavyweights just are not well-rounded. They're yep. just not that technical. And if you just go out there and fight them with confidence, you know, like DC had no trouble out wrestling Derek Lewis in a way that everybody else struggled to out wrestle Derek Lewis. True. And he didn't even have that much, the first time through, he didn't even have that much trouble out wrestling uh, and out boxing Steve Miocic, you know? Uh, true. True. Uh, Stipe had to, to go learn some lessons before he was able to come back and score the next two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and by then, you know, Cormier was, uh, I, I believe he was north of 40 in both of those contests. Yeah. So. so he was only getting it. So, all, you know, for Jones here, he slips one left hook and body locks, France, er, body locks are all gone. And suddenly you're just like, oh, wait. Cyril gone doesn't know what to do here. He doesn't know what to do with somebody from, with a rear body lock that is actually going to functionally wrestle him from this position. Because who else in Cyril Gaon's entire career could do that? Uh, yeah. Nobody. There's nobody that Cyril Gaon has ever fought before that could get to a rear body lock and be like, oh, you know what? I might actually just kick out one of your feet and trip you. Well, are you ready for that? Um, I'm looking at the list of, of guys that gone has, has beaten within the UFC uh, probably in terms of pure jujitsu credentials. Uh, Rafael Pessoa might've been tops and Pessoa washed out long ago. Um, yeah. uh, let's see. Dontel Mays. No Tanner Bozer. No JDS. No Rosenstrike. No Volkov Lewis. And Ganu Tuivas, yeah, all all of those are are strikers first and foremost. So yeah, so credit to Jones. He he, t you know, he was confident that this was a mismatch, and he walked in with the right confidence, and he showed it. Like he, you know, he just absolutely stormed Gon's castle and proved that heavyweight is just it is a funky decade behind everybody else kind of division technically you know and and i think that another thing that needs to be said is jones tends to uh perform based upon his motivation you know mm -hmm. like uh he looked great against cormier in both of their fights mm -hmm. um looked fantastic against gustafson in their rematch you know to the point where it, that was so hyped and then by the time it came around it's like okay that was boring because jones just dominated him and where Jones has struggled is when it's against an opponent that that doesn't offer much much name value, you know. Yeah, uh, he doesn't feel deserves to be there. Yeah, yeah, because he overlooked Gustafson the first time. That was a competitive fight. Uh, he swept OSP, but I don't feel like we got the the best version of Jones in that fight. Um, that was, and I will say that was an interesting reason for me to have a little concern here because I felt like the big reason that we didn't get the best Jones in that in that fight was that he was struggling with one of the only fighters he'd ever faced up to this point that was as big as him. And, and yep. And that's exactly why I was thinking, okay, I, I think Don's got this, you know, there's because yeah. Jones is such a wild card. There's so many things like, uh, is his head in the right place? Um, 
there's also the question of uh, how much damage he's done to his body with the substance abuse over the years. Is that ever going to catch up to him? Um, it, will he be able to handle the bigger guys? Like you said, just so many questions that had me saying, you know what? I, I think that uh, karma's going to catch up with Jones. I'm picking gone. But at the same time, even when I picked Don, I would, there was that voice in the back of my head that's like, Jones is the GOAT. You're going to pick against him. And I'm like, I, yeah. I, you know, I've, I've got to be willing to, to be ballsy enough to say it at some point. And, you know, it, when you're prognosticating fights, you're going to get some wrong. So it's not like I feel bad about it by any means. But, yeah, he, I, I think that nobody uh, has any argument about whether or not Jones is the GOAT after tonight. Yeah, well, I mean, he's certainly at least, you know, he, he's certainly, exa- yeah, I mean, it, it is, I, I don't know. I, I'm always a little, t- I'm always a little cautious throwing around the greatest of all time in reference to like light heavyweights and heavyweights. <laughs> That's fair. You know, like GSP won at middle, winning it as a welterweight at middleweight, even though it's over Bisping. And, you know, I, <sighs> I don't want to do Jones' own PR for him. He is definitely, absolutely in that conversation, though, of your GSP, your, uh, you know, your, your for, yeah, your Fedor, your prime Jose Aldo, your prime Anderson Silva, all those guys. And he hasn't had any of the falls that a lot of them suffered. So, yeah. At the moment, right now, yeah, he is leading and way up in that conversation. And, uh, yeah, you know, all credit to him for making sure that he keeps his name there. There's no, there's no better way than to cement, to, than to make sure that people have to talk about you as one of the greatest of all time than never losing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like yeah, people can, yeah. people can crap on Khabib for retiring early all they want, but the thing, the thing still stands that dude fought a lot of good people and he never lost. Yeah. You know, and, and Habib can even point to the fact, you know, uh, hey, I don't have that one next to my name. And everybody knows that Jones was beating the crap out of uh, of uh, Hamill. Yeah. But at the same time, he did something stupid and got that uh, that loss hung on him. So Habib's got that up on him. But yeah. Yeah. It is definitely a. Uh, it, it's definitely a, 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 a big legacy helper for for John Jones here. 100%. So in that way, yeah. And then now he's going to, he, he wants to go out and, you know, apparently they're going to push for the steep a fight. I mean, it seems pretty much already set that that's going to happen since the UFC's kind of, you know, kept steep a waiting in the wings and steep a stayed in the wings and they tried to do this, Nganu thing, and then they, you know, Nganu stuff fell apart, but they were basically like, oh, Stipe, or it's going to be Stipe, or it's going to be Jones. It was neither, because Nganu left, but Jones fight's gone, and now, yeah, I got to think that they do the Stipe fight in International Fight Week. You know, and, and given that Jones sounds motivated for that fight, I I do not see myself picking against him come time for that Oh, fight. no, I'm definitely picking him over Stipe, <laughs> yeah. no question. I have to say, too, I am very glad, though, that you picked uh, Gone here because I really need to catch up with you. I'm five picks behind you right now in the staff picks. <laughs> and hopefully, I, I, you know, the middle was a little hairy for me here. Obviously, I think we we all lost out on the co-main. 
So I didn't get to gain any ground there. But I'm hoping that, uh, you know, maybe maybe I can gain here and there. I, I picked Brunson, unfortunately. So that really doesn't help my case. I, I totally understand where you're coming from. And, you know, we'll we'll discuss that one when we get there. But, you know, you, you already mentioned the, the co-main event, which was yeah. easily the shock of the night. So Yes. Alexa Grasso, Valentina Shevchenko. I think, you know, you look at all of Shevchenko's recent opponents and other than Lauren Murphy, really more even than I would say Maya or Chukagin, like you'd have to go all the way back to I maybe to find a fighter that I would have would would have been less likely to pick to beat uh, Valentina Shevchenko. Agreed. And uh, she did it, you know. Alexa Grasso, she uh, she won the first round on most people's cards. Um, I think, you know, landed a few cleaner strikes in some open exchanges, the close round. But pretty clearly lost the next two rounds. Was just starting to get physically bullied, and um, it really just seemed like, you know, she had she had the ability to compete with Shevchenko in striking exchanges. But Shevchenko, even at the point in the in the fourth round, before the the takedown, Shevchenko was doing a good job, just kind of jab, keeping her on the jab and jabbing her up was very easily likely to be a 4-1 round or a 3-1 fight in my opinion agreed and then she did that spin kick and Grasso Grasso put proof to one of the great talking points of MMA that often feels like it's just one of those things that pundits say because they don't um they want to build up excitement and they want to get people invested in the idea that anybody could be a contender but grasso put truth to the idea that the long you know the longer your champ even if your physical skills aren't dropping off the longer your champ the harder it gets to stay champ because at some point every single person you are fighting is entirely focused on beating you and they've been entirely focused on beating you for years. And Grasso came out, you know, she, she's in there in the post-fight interview, and she's just like, I worked so hard on countering her spins with back takes. You know, that was her big camp focus. Because she knew that Shevchenko would just throw a spinning strike at random at some point during the fight. And that that would be a golden opportunity to jump on. Yeah. So she trained just for that specifically. And boom, here we are. You know, little else in this fight made me would have made you made you feel like Alexa Grasso was about to take this title home. Yeah. But she capitalized on that one thing that she knew was a gap in the armor that Shevchenko was going to produce in every fight. Yeah. And yeah, yeah she got it. I, you know, and, and kudos to, to Grasso. Like 
it, it's almost like she she played everything perfectly to lead up to that moment because first round Valentina was so focused on on uh, trying to play off the counter mm-hmm. and she she realized that she she couldn't quite match Grasso's speed because Grasso you know like you said Grasso took the first round I 100% agree with you on that and after that Valentina started focusing on taking the fight to the ground um, she, she was struggling to hold Grasso down uh, so e- even though that probably took her uh, gave her rounds two and three. She started focusing more on just uh, uh, throwing low kicks and, and keeping her jab in Grasso's face. And she was having great success with that in round four. Yeah, I think the big thing that the takedown did, even though she couldn't hold Grasso down and get that much offense, go, or she did hold her down for a long period of time, but didn't get much offense going out of it. Yep. The big thing it did is that it forced Grasso to try and start her exchanges from a step further away. Yes. So that, you know, in round one, Grasso was stepping into the pocket and trading with Shevchenko in the pocket. And Grasso is, I, you know, I, we noted it on the vivisection going into this. It's been one of the things that I have harped on for a long time about Shevchenko that I think gets overlooked is that Shevchenko is not a comfortable pocket boxer. No, she's not. She does not like exchanging in middle distance with people. She, she, would, she wants to be all the way out or all the way in. She wants to be trading with you from a, a really long distance where she can set up her spins and her big single strikes and where she can counter or she wants to be in the clinch and taking you down. But she does not want to be standing in front of you trading shots. So Grasso came out and she's the cleaner puncher in the pocket and she's getting into the pocket and she's getting landing the cleaner punches. But once Shevchenko started taking her down, Grasso had to start those exchanges from a step further away. And just doing that meant that the first shot that Grasso would throw was never landing from that point forward. Yep. And once that stopped landing, then Shevchenko could always be there on the counter to counter with the jab, to counter with the low kick. And yeah, just started picking her off that way. Yeah. And the other thing that actually had me uh, counting out Grasso beforehand was the fact that all the fighters that Valentina had struggled with uh, beforehand were, were bigger and stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, her two losses to Nunez, bigger and stronger. Uh, she did ultimately beat Juliana Pena, but in that fight, Pena was bullying her before she found the armbar. Yep. Um, uh, same deal with uh, uh, Tyla Santos. Santos was bullying her. Even J- J- Jennifer Maya got yep. on top because she was so strong and hard to take down in the clinch that when Shevchenko did her clinch, her clinch sacrifice throw that she loves to do, she just threw Maya on top of herself. Yep. And and. What I what I ended up overlooking with uh, Grasso is the fact that she's definitively uh, uh, faster, uh, probably a better athlete than uh, Valentina. Um, I wouldn't say she's quite as technical. She's not quite the the um, wrestler that Valentina is. You know, we were able to see that, but she's definitely quicker. And you know, like you said, she she timed it so that she could take the back because she is athletic enough to be able to do that to Valentina. You know, you look at all the people that Valentina's beat in this range. And quickness wasn't necessarily um, high upon the the uh, chart of skills for those that she has been beating up to this point. So, yeah, I mean, Grasso is definitely fast. I yes. I don't know if I describe that as purely being the better athlete because I think Shevchenko is not much, if any, slower and is stronger. But Grasso is fast enough to take advantage of the moment Shevchenko makes a mistake in a way that certainly people like Jennifer Maya and Lauren Murphy were absolutely not. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. No, they were completely <laughs> ill-equipped to do that. Um, yeah. Andrade, uh, she just tries to bully everybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Andrade just, she kind of, you know, she was going to walk in and she's going to try to out Hulk Shevchenko, yep. which Shevchenko is definitely strong. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, and yeah. Uh, what Chukagian definitely Chukagian, not fast enough. No, not a great athlete. Uh, you know, solid striker, but yeah. no way she was beating Valentina at her own game there. So yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's a great testament to grasp. It's a great testament to training and watching tape, and yeah. you know, focusing on a specific opponent and focusing on a specific technique to beat a specific opponent. Yeah. Looking at a hole in somebody's game and saying, "I can hit that. I can hit that mark," and it's. It's great for Grasso. I think she's going to have to do it twice. Agreed. That's the hard part because Shevchenko says she wants an immediate rematch. And, you know, who have we got waiting in the wings right now in that division? Blanchfield got, and Firo. Yeah, Blanchfield and Firo. And Blanchfield is, you know, she's talking the game. She's right there. She could she could go get a, a title shot next. Certainly if Shevchenko gets injured, she gets a title shot next. But it is hard to just, you know, like Blanchfield isn't going to outsell Shevchenko for the UFC in terms of being a draw right now. And neither is Manon Fierro. So if Shevchenko wants to fight for the title again next, you can't say she hasn't earned the right. She's been queen of that division forever. Agreed. And, uh, you know, maybe Manon Fierro and Aaron Blanchfield have to fight instead in the meantime. I, I can't say that I would not enjoy that fight. Um, yeah. The only thing that I would hope is that uh, we would get to see that fight for five rounds because I could easily see the UFC putting that uh, as a, a co-main event on a pay-per-view and we mm-hmm. would only get that for three rounds. I That one I want for five rounds. Definitely, definitely. Agree with that. So... Amazing win for Alexi Grasso, and, uh, you know, I don't know how long she'll keep the belt, but great for her for taking the long, hard road to get to this point in her career and pull off a huge win that, you know, I hope I hope gets her a couple of really big paydays so that she can walk away from this sport with something in the bank. No, I, I will say this. Uh, it... it it did not feel like a Matt Sarah moment where, you know, it just seemed to come out of nowhere. Grasso was competitive enough that I, I can see her continuing to build on this. So. Yeah, we'll see. Um, uh, yeah, she's only 29. So mm-hmm. despite having been in this sport for 11 years now, she's, uh, or really 10, 10 years and change now. She's definitely got, you know, she's definitely got miles left on her to go. Um, it's just, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting because it was, it was a fight. Like I say, if it, you know, if it hadn't been for that back take, she probably would have been down three, one and had needed a finish in the fourth or the fifth round to try and take this decision. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot, you know, there, it, it, she made some, she showed up that she has some good skills that she can keep being competitive with and she could, you know, she could make, she could defend the title, you know, especially against people like Blanchfield or Fioro who have fairly incomplete games themselves and are still rising. Yes. Um, 
I, I would be a little shocked if she ends up being another an, an, a new wave of dominant champ, but she's turned herself she 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 turned herself into a champion, and that can't be ever taken away from her, you know. Oh yeah. Oh, and when when I say that I don't see her being like Matt Sarah, what I mean is Sarah won the title, lost it, and then he was gone from the picture. I uh, at the very least, yeah, yeah. if Grasso ends up losing the title in her next in her first defense, she's going to be hovering around there yeah. for a while. That's very very fair. That makes sense. All right, that brings us to a catchweight bout, 175 pounds. A uh, would have been a welterweight bout, but Jeff Neal missed weight by a bunch. Shavkat Rachmanov, Jeff Neal. And um, fascinating performance from Rachmanov here. He he didn't land a takedown at all, which is maybe a little bit concerning since that's been a core part of his game all the way through the come up. And he had a Jeff Neal who is very fast, good at stuffing shots, but kind of a one-dimensional puncher and didn't seem like he was in the best shape out there. And Rachmanov couldn't get Neil off of his game. That said, he also just went out there and took Neil apart at his own game. Yep. Just walked in and outpunched him, outclinched him, landed brutal knees inside, body kicks, and just he ate huge shots from Neil, slipped a lot, looked, you know, his defense is it's not a, it's not bad considering how much he was walking in on a very fast-handed puncher with aggressive strikes of his own. Yeah. But he got his head boxed around a bit by Neil in that fight and ate everything, took the damage and just was so relentless that he that Neil had to start breaking down in the last round. And then choked him out standing with that sort of like standing almost bulldog schoolyard kind of choke. Uh, he totally big brothered him. You know, yeah. That, that's the type of, of choke where little brother's annoying big brother. And he just grabs him like that and squeezes as hard as he can until little brother's out. <laughs> yeah. Dropped him like it was John Jones and Leota Machida all yeah. over again. What you wear, you almost never see a walk off submission. So yeah. that yeah. was really cool. And even without the takedowns, even having to fight Neil at his own game, it's hard not to be hyped for Shavkat Rachmanov. Dude oh, yeah. absolutely looks like a title contender. Well, there's a couple of things that, you know, we can take out of that. Number one, I 100% agree with you uh, with regards to his wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also been concerned about that since he he struggled to take down Alex, Alex Oliveira in his sure, UFC sure. debut. Um, but beyond that, uh, Rachmanov's got a chin. Because not only did he eat those shots that you were talking about, but after a bunch of them, he was smiling at Neil, which it tells me that he's got the crazy to become champion because you do have to be a little bit cha- crazy to succeed in this sport. Um, and just he was determined to get that finish. Yeah. You know, he did not want a decision. He has yet he's to never been to one before. Yeah, exactly. And so he was like, he, he, he was determined to get it. And if, if you want something that bad and are able to get that at this level in the sport, there is something special about you. That's not to say that there's not holes with him that I, I think that the proper opponent could exploit. But even with that said, I, I would say Rachmanov's living up to the hype so far. Yeah. So he called out Colby Covington 
or a title fight after the fight, which, uh, and there's also, you know, a fight I think we would all want to see at some point is, uh, um, oh, damn it. Why am I blanking right now? Uh, yeah. Uh, there's Kamzat Shemaev out there, unbooked. Yeah, the thing is, is is Hamza going to be fighting at welterweight anymore? That's the big mystery with him. At we don't this point. know. We don't know. Yeah. But these are all potential ideas, which leads me to ask: uh, How long do you think we'll have to wait until he's just fighting Bilal Muhammad? Because nobody, uh, nobody else in that division is going to fight him. Yeah, and and it, you know the it, it seems like the UFC brass doesn't want to give uh, Bilal a title shot either. Yep. Yep. Bilal's just going to be treading water and Chimaev is going to be waiting for Covington and Covington is going to be waiting for old age to take these people out of the division then yeah I, you know that seems like the fight that ends up getting booked is Shavkat Rachmanov against Bilal Muhammad I, I can't say that I, I would be against it I think that sounds like a fun fight but yeah. I, I just because I think it poses such an interesting matchup. Uh, I would love to see what he can do against Colby. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see that. I'd love to see. I'd love to see uh, Hamza versus Colby too. Like Covington, he's done good work to solidify that two spot, and he's also been beaten enough to show that he's not the champ, and he's not about to get another title shot. So, like, you got to fight somebody else. Yeah. You can't just be Jorge Masvidal. That doesn't mean much anymore. <laughs> it it and, didn't mean much when he did it, but he, uh, he picked the right time for it. Yeah. So, like, I you know, it, you got to do something else. And it, if it's not going to be one of these two dudes, then maybe it'll just be Bilal. I don't know. I don't know who... I don't know who who anybody in the top of this division is going to fight right now. All I know is that at least Usman and uh, Edwards are fighting each other again. And then after that, like, maybe Shavkat just leapfrogs Bilal. Maybe Hamzat leapfrogs Bilal. Who knows? Um, I, I hate to say it, but I expect somebody to leapfrog Bilal. Not because I think they deserve it, but just because the UFC does not want Bilal in that spot. Yeah, that's that's how it seems to me too. So, yeah, that that's kind of Shavkat is he is entering a very stagnant, uh, elite picture just at this moment, and hopefully, hopefully he can get a good fight out of it somewhere along the way. Yep. Yep. All right, that brings us to a lightweight bout: Mateusz Gamrot, Jalen Turner, and. Uh, yeah, kind of the fight I expected in that Turner doesn't always make the best decisions countering takedowns, and he really likes to be aggressive in tie-ups. So he let Gamrod in on his hips a lot. He let Gamrod get a hold of him and get him to the mat a lot. But every second that Gamrod didn't get him to the mat, Turner was really dangerous. I will say this. People who are saying that Turner just should have won this because he landed some bigger strikes at different moments, maybe questionably got a knockdown in the first round, too. Gamrot landed a lot better strike standing than I expected coming into this. And yeah. he did enough to hold his own for the bulk of this fight in striking exchanges. 
Oh yeah, no. Uh, Gamrod, the reason why he uh, was a two division champion in KSW is because he is as crafty as they come. You know, like Turner is a a physical freak for for lightweight. You you don't find specimen his size at at that division, and that has been his biggest advantage. The best way to be able to combat that is to find somebody who is as crafty as Gamron because he he had his troubles with Turner, you know, because it, it was a split decision. You know, it was a very close fight. Um, but what, what Gamron did was he recognized that uh, Turner, for, for all of his uh, physical abilities, isn't the most technical when it comes to being able to get back up, uh, to, to being able to stuff, show, blah, stuff takedowns. He relies very heavily on his physical skills, and I'm not trying to, to say that he's a terrible fighter because of that. It, it's hard not to when you haven't been challenged in that manner because Turner's slowly made his way up to the division at this point, and this is the first time that he's faced somebody like Yamrot. I expect he'll be able to learn a lot from this, but Yamrot made him work in a way that nobody else has uh, made Turner work, and, and you can see Turner uh, gassing somewhat down the stretch, whereas Gamrot, even though he pushes an insane pace in every fight, he was still looking fresh down the stretch. Which is insane, considering he took this fight on short notice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, it was, you know, there, to me, I get, I would give Turner round one, I'd give Gamrot round two, and I am not surprised Gamrot won round three. I think it was a very close round. You could go either way. Yes. Um, Gamrot did well to land big shots throughout the round. Turner uh, landed, I think, probably the hardest, the biggest damaging blow in that round. But then he also gave up takedowns that, and you know, get, where Gamrot didn't just take Turner down, but also advanced positions. Yes. You know, did some actual functional aggressive grappling. Yep. So I am not at all surprised that Gamrot got the win there. I see the controversy after the fight. You know, Gamrot is asking for a top five fighter. Unfortunately for him, the only fight I can see clearing up to to be one that he could even try to get would be Gagey versus Fiziev. And I really doubt the winner of that fight is going to want to fight Mateusz Gamrot. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like they would believe that would be a step backwards. And yep. Yep. Uh, Gamrot's in a bad spot. Uh, He's. He's just in a, he's in a position where the, everybody up top doesn't want to take a step backwards. And if you you look at who they are and why they are where they are, you you understand where they're coming from. Yeah, I mean Dustin Poirier didn't doesn't even want to fight doesn't even want to fight Benil Dariush because he thinks that fight is too lame and beneath him. And like, Dariush just barely beat Gamrot, so he's not getting that fight. Yeah. Yeah. So it uh, it is really not you know honestly. Kind of think the fight to take right now for Gamrot is a rematch against Sarukian. I, I was thinking the same thing, and, and the thing that sucks for Gamrot, I don't think he has anything to gain from taking a rematch with him. No, he, he doesn't really. But the, I mean, the other option on the table would be like RDA, which RDA's last fight was at uh, welterweight, though. So I don't even know if he's going to be willing to come back down to there. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, not. Maybe maybe Hooker, you know, I, I know that that's kind of a fight that's treading water, but... but well, that's even time, fighting down the division for him. It, it, yes, 
yes. But at the same time, Hooker's got enough of a name. You know, he he's fought people like uh, Poirier yeah. and uh, Chandler, you know. So, because uh, it, it, that think might it would, be what it has to be. Yeah, I, I think he would be better off getting another name uh, on his ledger as opposed to just sitting around waiting for somebody ahead of him saying, okay, I'll fight you. So Yeah. Just a little reminder that you could support the MMA Vivisection, the MMA Depressed Us, and the sixth round post-fight show simply by going to patreon.com slash MMA Vivisection. With three different tiers ranging from $3 to $7, it's incredibly easy to show support to your favorite analysts, Zane, Connor, Eddie, and Phil. So if you have a few dollars to spare, please consider us. Thank you so much. All right. That brings us to a middleweight bout. Bo Nickel, Jamie Pickett, and... I kind of, you know, I was in the middle, I'm typing and I'm watching and I'm handling some other stuff. Bloody Elbow is in a lot of flux right now, for those of you who don't know and are just kind of catching this podcast alone and haven't been paying attention to a lot else. We're currently setting up our fundraiser drive, our sub stack, um, which you should all join up and sign up for. And we're doing a lot of, you know, getting things ready and getting publishing and all that kind of stuff that we're doing on any big crazy fight night, too. So I'm kind of distracted. And I saw Nickel hit the takedown, from which point he pretty much just moved through like three different submissions before getting that arm triangle, which he didn't set up all that well, but he just kind of powered his way through. Um, And then there's now some pretty legit controversy with Pickett filing a challenge saying he's going to file a challenge with the commission because that takedown was started off of what seems to be a pretty clear knee straight to the groin that went uncalled. I don't think he's going to get much success on that because we've, we've seen things like that happen before. Uh, the only, I mean, uh, there's like, uh, what's his name? The, uh, the dentist, not Josh Near, but the uh, British middleweight, light heavyweight. Oh, Darren Stewart. Darren Stewart. He got a fight overturned uh, when he was, let's see, who was he fighting uh, against? Frantamar Bahos. Frantamar Bahos, yeah. Um, where that was a TKO, but he headbutted, headbutted Bahos. To start out the the TKO combo, yeah, and the Brazilian Commission overturned that. Now I will say that the Brazilian uh, Commission is a uh, different kettle of fish because it is much more of an independent uh, sanctioning body than a government like official kind of thing. Yeah, where with like the Nevada Commission, the the most important thing for the Nevada Commission for state commissions, state athletic commissions tend to be protect the relationship with your officiating crews because those people are do, working for very little money, and whenever the UFC ha- goes to uh, 
Nevada, if they want to put on fights in Nevada, they have to deal with the Nevada Athletic Commission. They don't really get another set. You know, they, they're they over a barrel there. They don't that the commissions don't have to play to promoters, which is kind of for the best. Whereas I think, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, I believe when the UFC goes to Brazil, like they hire the uh, CAB in Brazil to manage the show. If I'm not mistaken, it was also the Brazilian commission that overturned. Uh, oh God, who was it that got that choke against Drew Dober? Oh, uh, um, not Borchinha, but it's um, the Beetle Leandro Santos, I believe. Yeah, Leandro Santos. Yeah. Um, and so they are much more forgiving of like, oh well, you know. We want we want to make sure we get it right. There was a mistake here. It led to this. We'll 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 overturn it. Whereas the athletic commission is like, well, we trust the ref to make the right read in the cage. And if the ref comes to us and they say, I don't think there was a low blow there. Or I think I got it right. Or you know, I stand by my decision at the time. Yeah. Then the commission is automatically just going to be like, okay, well, we side with that usually. So, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm- we can go even further back because uh, I'm going to say based on this, it, it's not just uh, uh, the state commissions. I think it would just be North America in general, because uh, you remember when uh, Matt Wyman did not actually choke out Mac Danzig. Mm. Uh, he yeah. had him in that choke and, and then the referee didn't see, you know, Danzig wasn't moving because he was trying to conserve energy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that one, that one didn't get overturned, even though it was clear that Danzig was still in the fight. So, yeah. So this, I, you know, I think there are historic cases that uh, point to the unlikelihood of this being overturned. Yeah. The pick, well, the picket, I think there are historic cases the picket could lean on to try to argue that this should be overturned, but the likelihood that it will be, I don't think it's so. It's pretty slim. Yeah. But overall, if it does, then man, is Bo Nickel uh, really not just having the sort of like, Greg Hardy intro to the UFC is like the ne- the next guy off the contender series that the UFC threw a lot of money at and is trying to turn into an instant overnight thing where Hardy came out and immediately had like his first win overturned or like, Oh, he did. Yeah. He was, he was DQ'd because uh, yeah. he, it was an illegal lead That's to right. Alan Crowder. Yeah. He had, he was DQ'd right away. Yeah. And, uh, then a couple fights later had the no contest to Ben Sassoli. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's right. Because, uh, and then, uh, that was the inhaler incident, yep. right? Yeah. Yep. Wow. I will say Nickel looks like a legit, he looks like the real deal. He's powerful. He's aggressive. He's confident. There's a reason it is good to have your early career done at a low regional level where nobody's yes. watching. Because you're going to get, you know, go through some hiccups and some weirdness. You're not ready for all of the nuances and ins and outs of high-level fighting. And you're going to make some mistakes, you know? Well, he, and, he, he showed his inexperience with uh, his inability to finish that arm triangle early. You know, like, yeah. he was purposely keeping his leg within Pickett's guard. And I'm like, what are you, what are you yeah. doing? Get out. Get out. Circle yeah. out. Yep. He he was very per- he was very clearly setting that up wrong. Just still a raw fighter, very much a big talent, but definitely the kind of thing where the UFC. I mean, I don't think he's ever going to fight off of a main card. I think that 
you know, the, the, we can really use the Hardy example as what is being done with Nickel, which is that much like Hardy, they've run, they ran Nickel through Contender Series twice, and they probably did that because coming out of it, I would assume like Hardy, they're immediately putting him on a pretty big deal. Like I think Hardy was immediately on like eighty and eighty or seventy and seventy. Yeah, no, it it was something like that, and I think he was on the main card of their ESPN debut. Yeah, Hardy, I don't believe, at least not not until he started losing, he was pretty much never on a prelim card for the UFC. Yeah. And I believe that they're doing the exact same thing, because that's what the UFC does, too, is if they sign you to a deal that is not your standard regional oh, you're taking the lowest contract possible, which we offer everyone. They, If you want money from the UFC, they will throw you in the fire right away. Yep. They will put you in big fights. They will say, okay, well, you say you're worth it. Sink or swim. Go. So uh, I expect Nickel will get a couple of sidesteps for now. You know, he might fight uh, Dushko Todorovic or uh, Dustin Stoltzfus or you know, somebody in that kind of neighborhood next. Um, but if he wins a couple more fights, don't be surprised if you see him end up in that sort of like Hardy Volkov situation all of a sudden where you're like, wow, how did you get here? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I never like fighters jumping into the fire that quickly. You know, the, the no. only one who has uh, found major success doing that, was, was Brock Lesnar, and Brock Lesnar is a once-in-a-generation type talent. You know? Heavyweight's 10 years behind. We already talked about this. Like Heavyweight's just a really weird division. You should never base... Heavyweight should be excluded from all NNA, MMA stat keeping. <laughs> you should never base any part of the MMA meta, any part of the culture of the sport at the time, anything that anybody's doing, anything that is making sense across the sport, never include heavyweight in that analysis. There's there's the rules for MMA, and then heavyweight, just it, it breaks all of the rules. Yeah. There's, it's all exceptions. I've talked about how, like, there's, really we have two sports, middleweight and above, and welterweight and below. <laughs> But really, like, heavyweight is much different. There's a lot of different Yeah. Anyway. uh, um, We better get moving. (laughs) Yeah. Nickel, he he showed up. He did what he was supposed to. Maybe it'll get overturned. I would be surprised. But even if if it does, he's just, he should get another side, you know, a a step sideways. He's going to get another high-profile bout. He keeps winning. The UFC will absolutely bump him into top competition. All right, that brings us to a bantamweight fight. Cody Garbrandt, Trevin Jones. And, uh, man, wouldn't it have been cool if Trevin Jones had started fighting, like, around earlier? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, the, it, the first, what, I guess two and a half rounds of that fight were just terrible. Um, yeah, Trevin afraid to pull the trigger. Garbrandt doing exactly what he should. I mean, this is a dude who could not buy a win lately. Just be on your bike, stick and move. You're twice as fast as this guy. Why tangle and do anything to put yourself in harm's way? And we saw why, because the moment Trevin Jones actually started just saying, you know, fuck it, I'll pull the trigger, he started to hurt Garbrandt. Yeah, no, and, and it was it was a terrible fight for uh, for viewers to watch, uh, but at the same time, just like you said, it was the smartest possible fight for Garbrandt to fight. You know, yeah. he 
he needed a win far more than he needed a highlight reel. Um, yeah. And he was able to get that. Uh, Jones, that ended up being his fourth loss in a row. Uh, there was some surprise that he was still on the roster after number three. No doubt in my mind he's he's getting his pink slip after this one, though. That was not the yeah. performance that the UFC wanted from him. So. No, I mean, it, it sucks especially because, you know, his corner is screaming at him to go. You know he doesn't want to get humiliated. Fighters, you know, that is a drive, that is a core fear for them is to go out there and have it, everybody, you know, just get shown up. You have it look like you had no business being out there, not get to show anything. But at the same time, he did something kind of almost worse, which is that he absolutely ensured that nobody wants to watch him again. Yeah, no, um, it isn't quite on the level of uh, William Knight from a couple of weeks ago, but it, he came close. Yeah, like I and the UFC booked two counterfighters. This is kind of their fault too. You book two counter punchers, you're not going to get a thriller, you know. No. And and in defense of uh, Garbrandt, he did just enough that he was winning the fight, and everybody knew that he was winning yeah. the fight, which is why the pressure then goes to Jones. Exactly. And yeah, I feel bad for Jones, but at the same time, like. The moment you started doing stuff, you started winning. You really should have started doing stuff earlier. Yep. All right. That brings us to a middleweight bout. Drikas Duplessis, Derek Brunson, and the streak continues. The wildest, weirdest, most out-of-control hype train in the UFC. Drikas Duplessis, there is... No way that he should be a top five middleweight right now. <laughs> he has he can't stop a takedown. He has never met a punch that he didn't want to eat. He gasses within five minutes. Doesn't lose though. Yeah. And, and that's the yeah. bottom line. <laughs> yeah. He's no. powerful. He's determined, and no matter how tired he gets, he fights really hard to the point that Derek Brunson had to quit. You know, his yeah. his corner had to quit because he stopped. He his body just like it was almost like he got knocked out by tiredness. He was literally just laying there on the mat, staring at the ceiling, unmoving. And Duplessis just plugged him a couple times, but didn't even look like Brunson went unconscious or anything. He just didn't have any energy to move anymore. He was yeah. literally unconscious due to how tired he was. You know, and, and there's another part of me that wonders if he figures that, okay, the, the round's about to end. He's tired. I'm tired. He's not going to land anything big until that point. Credit to Duplessis because that last punch that he landed on Brunson did force Brunson's head to, to hit the mat pretty hard. So I know... No blaming Brunson's corner. In fact, credit no, no they had to call for, it. Yes, for throwing in that towel. That, they that had to call it. To them. He was even even if he hadn't eaten that shot, he was so tired that he could not functionally fight yeah. anymore. It had to be called. <clears throat> yeah, and it, you know it, that's far from the first time that we've seen Brunson gas quickly. Um, you know the the classic example of him doing that was against Whitaker. You know he yeah. just went balls to the wall and gassed within a half a round. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like he was going quite as hard as he did against Whitaker. No. It makes you wonder if age is starting to catch up to him because, because Brunson is 39. Yeah. Well, and, I believe he retired after the fight. Uh, he, 
he said that he wanted uh, one more fight. Oh, did he? he? On that, uh, well, entering this contest, he said okay. he. Yeah, he said, that fight, he, said, he sent out a tweet said, thanks everyone for watching my career. Okay. And I, I, I appreciate that. you all. You know? Yeah, it, and, it, and that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I would not surprise me either because, yeah, he's 39 and that was, a, that was a fear for me coming in. I'm like, I'm picking Brunson. I know he's going to get takedowns. I know he's going to get, like, he, he has power. He can yeah. be a very controlling fighter on the mat. But my worry is He's too old to fight at the kind of pace he's used to anymore without yeah. getting tired. And that's what it looked like. This is this seemed like a very winnable fight for him. And he just could not maintain. Because he was he just, even in round two, he just walked out and started hurting Duplessis. Yep. And it just all made him tired. Yeah. And anytime a fighter starts talking about retirement, because Brunson was talking about that last year. Yeah. That's just a huge red flag for me. Like you know, we, yeah. we've had some of our, our favorites retire recently, and it never seems like, you know, once they start talking about it, it never seems to end well. Uh, Joanna yeah. had been talking about it, didn't end well for her. Um, our, our colleague, Roxy Modafferi, you know, when she said it was her last fight, it, it, for me, that was like, okay, I'm going to pick against her just because she's talking yeah. retirement. Yeah. So before this fight, Brendan Allen called out Drikas Duplessis, which... I'd be absolutely down to watch that. But also, just in the in the realm of totally comical, A, I have no idea if Paulo Costa is still going to be with the UFC at all or not, but <laughs> Costa versus Duplessis seems like a must-watch fight. And the other option of a fight that I just feel like I have to see at this point and would be great booking right now is Sean Strickland versus Drikas Duplessis. Yeah, yeah. That is a must-see fight. I mean, every Duplessis fight for me is must-see now because he is absolutely like wacky, inflatable sky guy out there <laughs> just going ham on people. And it's it's unbel- it's thrilling. It's terrible, yeah. but it's thrilling. No, somebody's going to have to expose him at some point. You know, I think we all know that it's coming. Uh, but yeah, like I, I cannot agree with you more with the idea of Costa or Strickland just because both of them are crazy. Um, if Marvin Vittori wasn't booked right now, I'd probably say that might be one I'd be interested in too, just because he's, he's nuts with a, with an unsinkable gas tank. And so, yeah, I don't know. There's middleweight is, it, it is, I know that you've said it so many times before, but middleweight is the most middleweight division out there. Oh, yeah. It is fantastic. <laughs> it really is just a weird, weird dude division. All right. That brings us down to women's flyweight. Amanda Hebush, Viviani Araujo, and um, great work from Hebush. Uh, she seemed like the, the first round of this fight seemed like it was going the way I would expect with Hebush just being a little bit outgunned and not able to, and Araujo being too good an athlete for, even if he, even when Hebush got a takedown, she's not, you know, wasn't getting a submission or getting particularly close to one. And it seemed like, okay, well, that's where we're going to go. If Araujo stays on her feet just enough to outstrike Hebush, she might win. And then Araujo walked straight onto that right hand that dropped her and Hebush, 
she is relentless. She is great tra- at transitioning, and she never let Araujo off the hook again from that point and just kind of took over the whole fight. Yeah, uh, Araujo was in complete survival mode for the rest of the second round at that point. And yeah. I, I think she uh, expended so much energy just trying to stay alive uh, that by the time the third round came, she she didn't have anything left in the tank because you know they they it was largely a stand up battle between the the two of them for that round. And in the first round, she was sharp. You know, she was uh, able to to keep keep us on her heels with her with her jab and you know the occasional power shot. None of that was there in the third round. Yeah, she was just she was again. It seemed like just trying to survive. Not in the same way she was in the second, but yeah, her her, her energy was sapped, and and Hebus just kind of cruised from there. So I was thinking earlier when this fight, because I expected, of course, for uh, Shevchenko to win and Blanchfield to be next or something, and so I was like, you know, Hebus versus Asparza seems like a totally fine idea to me, if that's the fight she wants. But now, with the likelihood that we're going to get uh, Shevchenko Grasso too, and we've got Blanchfield, and we've got Fiero, and we've got Santos all standing around with nothing to do, I'd say it probably makes a lot more sense for Hebus to just hang around at 125, fight what fight a potential contender. I, I think that this win kind of solidifies the fact that she's going to stay at 125. Um, she says she wants to do both, and she. You know, she specifically called for the Asparza fight after this. I um, don't want to see that. <laughs> I'd be fine with it, but like it, it, at this point, with the with contenders now having you know time to just t- sit and twiddle their thumbs, then yeah, you might as well throw Hebus into that Hebus into that mix because, like you know, it, it, even if you do Fiero versus uh, versus Blanchfield. Then what's Tyler Santos doing right now? You know, uh, no. And go ahead and uh, put Santos in there with Hebus. With the main thing that I'm getting at is I, I don't like uh, seeing her trying to bounce between uh, two divisions. Don't get me wrong; it, it's ballsy as hell, and in that sense, I completely admire them. But uh, for Andrage, uh, you know, we we saw her bouncing between strawweight and flyweight, and, sure. and it's possible that she. Uh, could have cost herself a a shot at uh, uh, Wei Li Zhang because she lost to Blanchfield while while moonlighting at 125. Uh, you know, obviously we don't know yet. It's not like uh, Zhang's been booked in a, her next fight yet, so it's possible it could still be Andrade. But I no, Andrade is fighting uh, Yan uh, Jonan next. Oh, that's already been booked. Okay. Yeah, she's already got a new fight booked. Oh. Yeah, that woman is amazing with regards to that. Damn, I didn't know yeah. that one. She turned around just, I think, today or yesterday and got that new fight booked. So, oh, good at you. But yeah, I just, I, I, I would love to be able to see Eva uh, choose a division, stick to it, and, and just climb the ladder there. Okay, um, Joseph. <laughs> that's, I, I, I get it. I get it. I yeah, know what you're yeah. saying, but yeah. All right, let let's move on. We got we got more fights to cover, and we're already way well into our our time here. Uh, Mark Andre Barrio, Julian Marquez. Man, I thought Marquez had this sewn up by the end of the first round. Just <laughs> seemed like he was getting exactly his fight, landing all the bigger strikes, landing with power, landing kicks. Barrio just getting stuck trying to enter the pocket over and over again, trying to jab his way into range. And 
Marquez doing a good job, like sliding off on angles to land with power, countering. It just right. seemed like it was all there. And then Barrio just, I mean, I think the thing is, is that Marquez fell into the problem of when you're having success and, but you're having your success at the other person's pace. Like they're bringing a fight to you. That's a faster pace than you would normally fight at. And it's all going well for you, but you're still fighting the whole time at their pace. And sure, sure enough, slowly, but surely that pace started to clearly gas Marquez and Barrio just started to wreck him. Yeah. If if you don't get Barrio out of there in a hurry, he's not going to go away. Yeah. And he just he just kept coming. Like you said, it was his pace of a fight. Marquez didn't try to alter that or anything like that. And yep. he just he filtered down the stretch because Barrio's favorite thing is to punch you up and just pound you away with the uppercuts. And once Marquez couldn't uh, evade him anymore, that's exactly what Barrio did. Yep. Yep. Our, our uh, producer just stepped in to note that performance of the night went to Bo Nickel, Alexa Grasso, and John Jones. will be a little funny if Bo Nickel got a performance of the night bonus for a fight that later gets overturned. Uh, fight of the night went to Jeff Neal and Shavkat Rachmanov. All well-deserved. No notes on any of that. All right. That brings us to a welterweight bout, Ian Gary, Song Keenan, and um, credit to Song, because this was a fight that I thought he was just going to get dog-walked in. He almost won it, and then he also just got dog-walked all the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Kinnon, to his credit, he, he was able to find a hole early with Gary, uh, landed that, that big counter, and, and came this close to putting him away, but I think... He just got a little too excited in the moment and, and rather than take his time to, to find the finish, which I think he could have done. Gary was, he was on, uh, he was this close to being on dream street and just, ah, Song couldn't quite finish it. He, he let him get back up, kind of recover his wits and credit to Gary. He, he turned in a, a performance of Eliza's age. Uh, from that point on, he, he made sure he did not make the same mistake. And yeah. uh, just, just picked the uh, song apart from, from that point on and until uh, he was able to get the, the late, late finish. I mean, I realize that a whole bunch of fighters are going through Kill Clift and Hoofed right now for their U.S. camps. But I think Gary really seems like he's taking the right lessons away, which yeah. is, you know, just stay composed, stay on your clean, simple tools and don't let setbacks knock your confidence. Yeah. And he went right back to work after a bad first round and absolutely just took Sankin on apart all the rest of the way for a third round TKO. Yeah. You know, you can't, you can't ask for better than that out of a prospect in a fight where they got hurt really bad. Yep. That is so rallying from adversity all the way back to get the finish. Exactly. Exactly. Because a lot of time, that's the biggest question mark you have about prospects as they climb the ladder is, is how they respond to adversity. We got a pretty good sign of what Gary can do from that. Yep. All right. That brings us to a catch weight bout, 137 pounds. Cameron Simon, Leo Mana Martinez. And uh, yeah. Kind of the fight I thought it would be. Well, I mean, Simon's got to clean it up. This is also the danger. Talking about it with Nickel, 
earlier with Hardy, kind of with Simon, the UFC grabbing so many young fighters off the contender series or fighters who have not fought a lot off the contender series. Yep. They're getting a lot of very aggressive guys who do not have good control of their tools. Yeah. And Cameron Simon is one of them. Landed a big illegal knee to the head of his opponent in the last fight. Landed two really hard groin kicks and an eye poke on Leo Mata Martinez in this fight. And I know it's not intentional. I know he's not trying to do it. But it is just a young, excited fighter fighting better competition than he normally would at this point in his career who challenge him more than he normally would get challenged at this point in his career and force him to have to make more split second decisions that he doesn't always make that well. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, there's still a lot of rough edges uh, around the youngster, which means you're, you're going to get some rough results uh, when you throw him into a a pool this deep. Don't get me wrong. It's not like he's, he's swimming with the sharks quite yet, but it's far deeper than what he was fighting when he was in South Africa and it's a yeah. big jump up. So, but you know, th- that said, there's still a lot of things that I like about the kid. Um, yeah. He, he looks like that he could, uh, uh, be a contender in about two or three years. But... He's definitely taken a lot of the good parts of, uh, uh, of Drikas Duplessis game and just his tenacity and his ability, his willingness to scramble, his willingness to go for things and to just keep pressure on, you know? Yeah. He's still rough around the edges, still a bit messy, still a bit defensively liable, but outside of the point deduction in this fight, he otherwise controlled most of the action and would have, would have had a much cleaner, you know, much cleaner win had he not gotten that point deduction. But even with the point deduction, Still, you know, got a 10-8 from two judges on his way to a, a majority decision victory. Yep. Looks great. That brings us to a woman's strawweight bout, Tabitha Ricci, Jessica Penne. And honestly, this was the best way this fight could have gone. The UFC booked two fighters with games perfectly pitched to neutralize one another. And we saw a lot of that standing. A lot of just... Ugly missing from distance, a lot of bad kickboxing. And then they were also kind of suited to neutralizing each other on the ground since Penne is such a great guard grappler and Ricci is a, you know, wants to be a little top control bulldog, but is also tiny. Yeah. Yeah. And fortunately for Ricci, she's improving that part of her game a lot. And she was a lot better about being, about passing aggressively and about getting up and using, you know, if she got a takedown and she wasn't in a position she liked to be in or she that it was really advantageous, back out, do some other things, look to pass and improve position. Don't just hang out in guard and stall. And she did it enough that eventually she forced Penny to try to, you know, grab like a, a takedown off her butt and she jumped straight into that arm bar. And that was beautiful. Yeah. No, uh, the thing with uh, with Rishi is that she didn't really begin her MMA career in earnest until about 2020. Yeah. So that's that's less than three years that she's really been pursuing her professional career. So she's still extremely green. So th- there's no doubt in my mind that it you know there w- was going to be some uh, growing pains, but she's 
she's uh, developing quicker than what I expected. Like I, I didn't think that she was going to to score this clean of a win over Penne. Uh, so so kudos to her on um, on her uh, rapid learning curve. But you know, there's still a ways to go for her. Uh, yep. But at the same time, um, given her grappling credentials, uh, she's going to be a lot of fun to watch. I, I hate to say that she, her ceiling is going to be capped by by her size because she is tiny for the strawweight division. Um, you know, she, she's one of those that I, I don't expect it's going to happen. But if the UFC were to uh, implement an atomweight division, she yeah. she would probably be uh, a contender at this point sure. already. But but yeah, um, she's going to be cursed by her size. Well, we'll see. I mean, you know, I, I think next thing you do is you throw her in against uh, oh, somebody like, Dakota. you know, uh, Emily Dakota, who also beat Penne recently and is pretty small. And then, you know, at some point she can go up and fight like Tisha Torres if she wins that fight, you know. There's a little ladder to climb here. At the, at the top of that ladder is Carla Esparza. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, Esparza probably could have made it down to Adam Wade if she had wanted to at some point, sure. too. So, sure. yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, this was a good, this to me was a good step forward for, the, for her to be a more interesting contender, potential contender, because she, oh, sure. she fought physically and she fought. She she did things aggressively with that physicality that kept her from getting stalled out in the way that her physicality got entirely stalled out against Pollyanna Viana. Yeah, no, she 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 knew exactly what she was doing. There was a confidence there. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, exactly, it, there was no stalling. Like you said, it was great performance from her. Yep. That brings us to a bantamweight bout: Farid Basharat, Damon Blackshear. And uh, really solid performance from Basharat. Blackshear made crucial errors, it feels like, in every single round. In what, like, it was to me a pretty even bout in terms of skill and physical ability and all that. But in terms of fight IQ, Blackshear made like one crucial error per round, and Basharat just didn't. Yeah. And that gave Basharat the split or the uh, unanimous decision 29 28. So. Yeah, um, not not a lot to to say about it, but um, you know that's two winless appearances for Blackshear. He yeah. may or may not get a, a return trip, but uh, I don't know. I he's fun, so I'd like to see yeah. him come back, but we'll see. And that brings us to finally our opening bout of the card: Loic Rajabov against Esteban Rubovich, and uh, fun, really fun, solid back and forth brawl of a fight. Rajabov had the big wrestling advantage, but he could not control Rubovich, especially was not ready for that Kimura sweep, got caught by that like three times. Yeah. And it just made this fight really fun all the way through. Rajabov still landed the bigger punches when the time came and he landed all the takedowns and got the ground control. He won the fight, but it was a fun, just a really fun brawl. Yeah, and it, it, making uh, Rajabov's win even more impressive. He he got this fight what with like a week's notice or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, credit to him on that for for stepping up on short notice, uh, getting the the win the, the way that he did. But at the same time, uh, kudos to uh, Rebovic. I'm, I'm I struggle with his Rebovic. name. Rebovic. Rebovic. Thank you. Um, he 
he's still a youngster, you know, yep. still very unpolished. And given his lack of experience, he looked very good. Um, mm-hmm. Give him a, a little bit more time to, to polish up. And I think he could be a hell of an action fighter in the division. Yeah, I mean, he's going to be a real fun, you know, just kind of brawling fighter. You put him in there at some point with like a Matt Frivola or a uh, uh, Terrence McKinney, guys like that, you know, you'll have a good time. All right. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to wrap us up. So you better, if you got a, a last quote I, to say. I was just going to say that it, it, he kind of reminds me of uh, Drew Dober in a bit. It, mm-hmm. If he could get to that ceiling, he'd be a hell yeah. of a Dober had to go through a lot of, he had to go through a lot of trials and tribulations to get there. But if Robovich can do that, then he'll be a lot of fun for as long as he sticks around. All right. On that note, we're going to, you can find me on Twitter at the Zane Simon. You can find Dane on Twitter at the Dane Fox. You can find us both over bloodyelbow.com and at our stu- our, at our new Substack, but for Bloody Elbow, the Bloody Elbow Substack, we'll, that'll be all over our site everywhere. Check it out. Subscribe. Just five dollars a month, just fifty dollars a year. You get a you get a little break. You know, we get our our QFC deal on here. Buy twelve get or buy buy twelve get two free kind of thing, or buy ten get two free. Um, so sign up for that. And as always, our podcasts are on. YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, all those places. So check us out there. We got our Patreon too for the sixth round and the vivisection and all that. And we love your support any way we can get it. So thanks everyone for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Just a little reminder that you could support the MMA vivisection, the MMA depressed us and the sixth round post fight show simply by going to patreon.com slash MMA vivisection. With three different tiers ranging from $3 to $7, it's incredibly easy to show support to your favorite analysts, Zane, Connor, Eddie, and Phil. So if you have a few dollars to spare, please consider us. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Presents production. To check out more of our content, subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is titled Bloody Elbow Presents. We're also on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents and you'll get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, the Level Change Podcast, the MMA Vivisection, the 6th Round Post-Fight Show, 6th Round Retro, the MMA Depressed Us, Crooklyn's Corner, Exclusive Fighter Interviews, Show Money, Guest Podcasts, the Hey Not The Face Podcast, and Radio Style Play-By-Play for every UFC pay-per-view. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloody elbow blog and as always on bloodyelbow.com. <laughs>